Good morning, everybody. As Dan said, Happy New Year. Um, yeah, we were in bed by 10.30 last night, but we have a seven-month-old, so that's to be expected, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> I have a study sheet um, that is in there. It might, it's a little different than I think what you're used to. I deal well with questions. Uh, that's usually how I, 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 just, I like them. Uh, they, they help kind of get the wheels going in my mind and in my heart. Um, so I, I put questions there. Um, if you don't like that, would you let me know? Like, if you're not comfortable with that, you don't think it works, if you just rather just have a, a couple references. You know, I, I enjoy feedback. So if somebody here is a, of an opinion, has a strong opinion about my, uh, my insert, please let me know because I, I want to know how I can better serve you all uh, with making things stick. But questions work really well um, for me. Um, with that, if you would, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn there, uh, specifically verses 27 through 32. If you don't, it's, it's okay. I, I'm going to read the story, so you can just listen because I, I, I'm going to read it out loud. Um, and as you do that, I want to set kind of the stage uh, for what's going on up to this point. Um, lost, sick, and broken would be words to describe those who constitute the church. As one commentator noted, in fact, it's actually at the bottom, it's a quote at the bottom of your insert. It says this, The church is a society of sinners, but Christians have a strange habit of forgetting that. That quote is kind of what we need to have on our mind today as we look at this topic of grace and um, come in today's narrative in Luke's gospel. Um, we are God's people. The church is made up of God's people. That, that's a true statement, but at the same time, we are broken people at that. Um, Luke is writing his gospel to a person named Theophilus. If, often, this is just kind of a, just a nice little fact. A, a lot of letters and books in the New Testament, when it's written, it actually tells you either why it's being written or who it's being written to. And thankfully, in Luke's gospel, Luke, the writer, is telling us exactly why and who he's writing to, and that person's name is Theophilus. Now, we don't know uh, much about Theophilus. He was a patron um, of Luke's, and, and we, we don't know his whole story, but um, there's various, maybe, reasons why Luke writes to Theophilus. Um, some say that, that Theophilus was a person, a Gentile, considering Christianity, and so Luke is writing this, this story, this gospel, to Theophilus to read as kind of a way of persuading him to accept Christianity. And that, that very well could be true. Um, but I tend to agree with uh, some others that say that Theophilus is probably a relatively new Christian. And he's a new Gentile Christian, meaning he's not a native Jew, who has doubts about his place in this new community, this heavily persecuted uh, racially and socially mismatch of people that are now constituting these, the, the, the followers of Jesus. And so this, this gospel isn't just meant to, be, to encourage this guy named Theophilus, that it, the original audience in us today, that it, it's meant to encourage people that feel out of place. You know, we all kind of feel out, out of place from time to time, right? Um, whether it's in your job, it's a job that you don't, you don't enjoy, or um, it's in a, a, you know, in a neighborhood you don't enjoy, or whatever, or, or just in whatever circumstances, we can all agree that we have this sense of being out of place. And so when you read Luke's gospel and we have that in mind, we can be encouraged that, that the gospel is, is written to those that just don't know what their place is in the world. And that's, that's the beauty, I think, of, of Scripture, is that it's not just these, these 
bits and pieces of, of how to live right. It's that, but it's also, it deals with life's toughest questions. Um, that, that, that covers the whole, sca- the whole scope of, of human experience. And it answers real solutions and real, real thoughts and speaks real truth into the heart's deepest meaning for significance. And so it's that sense of being out of place that what frames our story today in Luke 5. Um, to this point, Jesus has begun his ministry in, in Luke. Um, and you're hearing about this group of, of, of people called the Pharisees. And I'll get to them more later. And as, this, as, as Jesus is encountering these Pharisees, they start to get increasingly hostile towards Jesus' ministry. And as it, as it kind of increases, the interactions get a little bit more, um, a little bit more pointed. And so um, as we, we, we come to that, or if we come to this story, let's just keep in mind that interaction that Jesus is having with the Pharisees of Jesus is going around forgiving and healing people, forgiving people of their sins and healing people of their sicknesses. And the, and the Pharisees are quite honestly ticked off. So they, they think, who is this man that has the right to forgive people of their sins? So let me read aloud Luke 5. Actually, it's 27 through 13. I may have said 17. Um, and then we'll, we'll get started. It says this, After this, he, that's Jesus, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well, they have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, my, I want to thank you for this day, this new year, that we can come to you in your word as a, as a group of people wanting to um, know more about who you are. Lord, we, we all come from from different experiences, from different stories. We all have different stories, Lord, but we know that that Scripture speaks truth to the deepest longings of our heart. And Father, I'm thankful for that. And Father, as we we start this new year, I I just pray that we'd have a sense of your peace that you give us, Lord, and that you would be working in our lives. Some of us here... Um, have been under a lot, of, a lot of stress this week, even, after, even during the holidays, whether it's um, losing a loved one or being sick or um, just whatever it is, Father, we just bring those things to you now. And we, we ask that you would just give us a sense of peace and clarity as we hear your word and as we worship you. Lord, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has offered himself to us so that we may have salvation, that we may have life, real life. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, the prognosis was crushing. Um, I have a, a, a friend named, I'm going to change his name. His name's John, it's not his real name, um, because I, don't, I just want to protect him. Um, but he was a co-worker of mine, and he was given only a few months to live. Now, jo- John was diagnosed with stage 4 uh, colon cancer. The only thing that do- the doctor could recommend after this diagnosis was aggressive chemotherapy, and really it was just to kind of extend or prolong uh, his life. He was only given a few months to live, 
And, and I remember as John was telling everybody that he, that he had cancer, we were just in utter disbelief that, that it was true. John was in his 50s, but he looked like, I mean, he, was, he looked like a 35-year-old. I mean, he was incredibly healthy, incredibly active. And so when we found out that he had colon cancer, we were just in total disbelief. And he himself was in disbelief. John um, himself, he, he had this mix of disbelief, dread, and regret. And I say regret because John, if you, if you listen to his story and we talk to him, we, you find out that he had actually had the symptoms of being sick for a while. Um, he was having trouble using the restroom. He was having stomach pains. He was, he was having all these symptoms, and yet he prolonged going to see a doctor um, until it was, it was growing to be too late. See, John, he trucked along, even though he saw all these signs of being sick, uh, he, he trucked along thinking, I'll just wait to get checked out because I don't have time, or I have something else better to do, or it's, nothing, it's no big deal, or he was really worried that maybe the doctor was going to tell him something that he didn't want to hear. But no matter what the case was, John was ignoring these symptoms of being sick. John, he struggled to understand the depth of his sickness. And, and, and thinking about John's story, it, it kind of reminds me of, of Luke 27, this, Luke 5, 27. And, and us, when it comes to our own spirituality, we too can ignore these symptoms of being spiritually sick. Um, you know, for some of you here, I don't, I'm new, I'm relatively new, I should say, so I don't know everybody here, so I don't know everybody's stories, but for some of you, when I say that you're sick, you're, you're, you're like, yep, that's me. I, I struggle with so much. It, it just in a moment, if you brought up a story, it could just send this sort of sense of brokenness over you where, where waves of, of sadness would come over and you'd have to fight back tears of just talking about your own failings in life. And some of you, you know you struggle with anger, you struggle with manipulation of others. You struggle with perfectionism. You struggle with, with all kinds of, of things. And, and, and know that, you're, that, that there's a sin that's seeking to kind of devour you just around, just around the corner. You know that you are sick. For others, you may be thinking, praise God, I'm not like that. Thank, thank God I do not struggle like those people struggle or, or like some of the people that we read in the, in, in the Bible and their struggles that, that you, when you see your life you think, I, I really am a good person, that we really are good people. You, maybe maybe you, you are a member of this church, you're actively involved, your, your children go to Christian schools, you read all the right books, you watch all the right movies, you listen to all the right music. But under the reality, if you could for a moment just receive a spiritual CAT scan... It would reveal the depth and severity of your sickness. Thankfully, there is a remedy. There is. And God, is, it's this, that God offers healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And despite that, we all, including myself, struggle to realize the depth of our sickness. So as we look at the, the, the story today and the calling of Matthew and the feast that Jesus has with these sinners we see that there's this collision of expectations of, of who is really sick and ultimately who is who and how we become well. So the story is demonstrating this, and this is my point. This is the main, the main point that I want to make is that we all must turn to Jesus. As Jesus is attending this feast hosted by Matthew, Luke notes that there are fellow tax collectors and sinners present, as well as the, this group of people that I mentioned er, earlier, the Pharisees. This is quite a group of people, and um, it's really just a representative of the whole spectrum 
of, of spiritual conditions. But again, I want to show you from this passage that, that those who must turn to him are first these people, those who believe they are righteous, and second, those who know they are unrighteous. I'm going to work backwards from this passage. I'm actually going to start at 32 and kind of work towards the front of the narrative. I'm doing that purposely, well, obviously purposely, but more for um, wanting to emphasize um, some things, and you'll see that. So there will be some questions that might be hanging out out there that I won't answer right away, so bear with me. And then I'll make some conclusions, but I really think it serves to kind of illustrate and demonstrate what I want to talk about. So those first, who is it that must turn to him? Those who believe that they are righteous. Uh, this narrative happens rather early in Luke's gospel. In fact, the story uh, ahead of it is the first encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees in Luke's gospel. And it's actually, it's one of the more wild stories, I think, in Jesus' ministry. And I'll just retell it. And he's there, Jesus is at somebody's house, and they're all hearing about this, this man, Jesus, who can heal. And so the, the house is becoming filled with, with people that are sick and infirm that need healing and it, it's, it's such a sight to think about. But at one point, it, it, the house is so overcrowded with people that a guy who's a, who's a paralytic, who's paralyzed, and his friends actually, they climb up onto a roof, and they begin tearing the roof off and lowering this man who's the paralytic down so that they can be healed, or that he can be healed by Jesus. And it's just, it's just quite, it's such a scene. And, and Jesus, he's just, he's taken back by it. He's, he's I mean, he's just struck by their faith. And he tells the man that your sins are forgiven and the Pharisees are, they're, they're upset by this. And they begin thinking these thoughts in their heads, like, who, who does this guy think he is just healing people? And Jesus being able to perceive his thoughts, he, he tells them, um, he rebukes them for the, the way that they were thinking about his power and his abilities. And so we get to this story just right after and we see that the Pharisees have moved to just thinking thoughts and, and kind of uh, rebukes and, and criticisms of Jesus to now they're actually expressing it audibly. The Pharisees are offended and disgusted that Jesus is not only there, but willing to make the company of sinners. And so they're not only offended that they would call Matthew to follow him, but now he's, he's, he's showing this willingness to kind of make the company of sinners and, and, and kind of salty people, less than desirable people, and be willing to fellowship with them. So this re- their repulsion towards Jesus' actions towards the, the, the people at the feast, it boils over to, to the Pharisees questioning Jesus' disciples. And they, he asked, they ask this. It says, Why do you all eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That question is both an insult and an attack to not only the character of Jesus, but also demeaning those that Jesus is fellowshipping with. In, in short, the Pharisees are kind of suggesting, listen, if you're, gonna, if you're going to approach God, if you're going to approach spirituality, you kind of need to clean yourself up first. Make yourself spiritually respectable, morally respectable before you come to God. And, and Jesus, who is God, is saying, you can't do that. You can't, there's no doing this, this kind of self-cleaning. Your wounds are too big to be healed by on your own efforts. You need to come, you need to, come to me. You need to cling to me to have healing. So Jesus, he responds to the Pharisees, and, and it's, it's irony. It, we kind of, we, we tend to forget the fact that, you know, there is irony and there's a sense of humor in, in, in the Bible, and I, I feel like this is one of those times where it, it's a little cutting, because this is Jesus' response to, to the Pharisees' um, kind of rebuke. He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' response to the Pharisees, it's, it's ironic and it's rhetorical. Because what he's doing is he's basically playing off of their perceived perceptions about themselves. See, the Pharisees really did see themselves as righteous. And so he's, he's basically saying, you, you kind of people, you don't have a need for me. But he, he really is saying, you do, you do have a need. You just don't see it. You're, you're so sick. You're so gone with, with your own self-righteousness that you don't even see the need that, that I have. That, that you, um, you don't even see the need for, for, for my healing and my holiness in your life. Jesus' response is showing that all people are sick, including the Pharisees, and that all must turn to him. To kind of illustrate this point, um, if you've read The Call, Mike, I know you have, um, and some others here, it's a great book. Um, It's an illustration that that Oz Guinness, who writes that book, uses, and I'm going to use it. And it was actually kind of, the illustration came alive this summer. Um, It's about a, a burial ritual with the House of Habsburg. The House of Habsburg is probably one of the most well-known royal dynasties uh, other than maybe the House of Windsor um, in modern times. And as as famous as as the Habsburg uh, dynasty is known, or the House of Habsburg is known, it's the burial ritual that they have um, that's really uh, memorable. And actually, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but one of their last heirs, Otto van Habsburg, passed away this summer. And so you can actually find the video of this whole transaction, this whole event taking place um, online. I, I found it completely fascinating. Um, but what happens is the, the funeral is, is, is continuing, and it reaches the, kind of this, this climax at the church. And this MC who's been kind of going through this whole, this whole procession, he, he wants to seek entrance for the church for Otto van Habsburg. And so this is, the trans, this is kind of the transcript of what goes on. The first, the first thing that happens is this, is that the MC takes a cane and he knocks three times on the door of this large church. The church is completely closed. The doors are shut. And the procession's waiting outside for entrance. And he knocks three times, to which the, the prior, the capuchin monk, answers this. He says, who desires entry? The MC responds, Otto of Austria, once crowned prince of Austria-Hungary, royal prince of Hungary and Bohemia of Dalmatia, Croatia, Slavonia, Lodomeria, and Illyria, Grand Duke of Tuscany and Krakow, Duke of Lorraine, Salzburg, Styria, Carinthia, Grand Prince of Transylvania, Margrave of Moravia, Duke of Upper and Lower Cilicia, of Modena and Parma, Princely Count of Habsburg and Tyrol, Prince of Trent and Brixen, Margrave of Upper and Lower Lustatia and Astraria, Count of, of Hohenems, I'm butchering a lot of these names, just so you know. You probably expected that. Lord of Treats, Kotor, and Windic March. Grand Voivod of the Voivodship of Serbia, etc., etc. He lists it all. Every title that he's ever received is laid out. And the prior responds to him, we, we do not know him. The MC knocks three more times. To which the prior responds, who desires entry? This time the MC responds, Dr. Otto von Habsburg. President and Honorary President of the Pan-European Union, Member of the European Parliament, Honorary Doctor of many universities, Honorary Citizen of many cities in Central Europe, Member of numerous, numerous academies and institutes, Recipient of high civil and ecclesiastical honors, awards, and medals, which were given him in recognition of his decades-long struggle for the freedom of his peoples, 
for justice and right? The prior responds, we do not know him. The MC knocks three final times. The prior says, who, who desires entry? The MC, Otto, a mortal and sinful man, prior, then let him come in. Here lays Otto von Habsburg. He, he, he's sitting there, and, and he's, one of, he's the final heir of the house of Habsburg, and, and, and he has all these accolades. He's been the recipient of all these honorary degrees. He has all these titles from all these nations. He has all these ecclesiastical honors. He has, he has wealth. He has power. He has respectability. He has it all. And yet, until he was able to confess through the MC that he was a sinner, a sick sinner who needed to turn and trust Christ alone, not his accolades, not his power or his perceived righteousness, until he was able to trust Christ, he had no claim with God. So let me ask you, as we, as we look at this story, how do you view yourself? Um, I'm, I'm pulling something out of, a, of, of Mike's playbook that I've heard before. Do you think of yourself better than you ought to? This, I believe, is the heart of the Pharisees' condition, was the fact that they thought they were righteous, that they, that they really were good people, that they, they really were, uh, and, and they, they really deserve the respect and honor that came with their obedience to the law. But the sobering reminder for us is that they were filthy sinners, and Jesus is constantly trying to show them their deficiencies, despite the, their perceived self-righteousness. And it's a, it's a sobering reminder for us here as we, we begin uh, 2012. It's, you know, a lot of us here, we, you may have been a great athlete in, in high school. You may still be a great athlete in high school for some of the high school students here. You may be incredibly good looking. And a lot of people tell you that. You may be really successful in your career. You may have a lot of money. And, and, and some of you, you may, you may be, again, well-respected. You may be on the board of, of, of directors for some organization, you may be just a great and wonderful stay-at-home mom. But if you're only able to see your good deeds and not your unrighteousness and the little sins that you commit every day, then you're walking on dangerous grounds. The world may honor you. Your co-workers may praise you. You may be well-respected, again, here or out in the world. Your children may even vote you world's greatest dad or mom. But unless you're, enable, or unless you're able to recognize the sins and the sickness of your soul and trust in the healing grace of Christ, you have a, a spiritual disease. For others here, and this is, this is a warning especially to myself, um, let, this, let this story also be a warning to us as well. The Pharisees were criticized, or were characterized, excuse me, for the strict adherence to what's called the Mosaic Law. It's, we have all heard of the, old, um, the Ten Commandments and, and in the book of the Old Testament, there's a, a couple books that, that kind of list out this, this sort of elaborate system of, of law-keeping that the, the Israelites were supposed to obey. And, and so the Pharisees, they, were, they would get like an A and, and just kind of this literal observance of, of Old Testament law. And so... Uh, with that, they, they would constantly persecute, criticize, and ostracize anyone who was not able or didn't, didn't conform to their kind of narrow interpretation of how God's law should be practiced. 
And so similarly today, legalism and self-righteousness lurks in our own hearts, in, our, in, in the church today. I know, again, I, I say this because I struggle with it deeply. That sort of, that sort of self-righteousness, at times that, that struggle with least legalism, it's the ability, and if you don't know what that is, it's the ability to, to sort of look at somebody else's sins and say, look at them. They need to clean themselves up. Why can't they get it together? Without being able to recognize our own deficiencies. It's the ability to, to look at people and ask them to get, get it together. Us recovering Pharisees, we need the healing grace of Jesus just as much as any, anyone else. Uh, last week, if you were here, Mike gave a wonderful um, a message about the free gift of life that God offers us through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Free. It's a free gift. It costs everything according to God, you know, by God's standards and by God's sacrifice, but for us it's a completely free gift. Let me ask you, those that say um, that you're a Christian and, and believe, do you really believe that that's a free gift? Do you really live your lives as if you've been bought by a price and then be given a free gift? See, a lot of us, we, we, we really do, because I, if I'm honest, I struggle with this, want to curry favor with God by obeying Him. So what we do is we, we, we sort of do all the right things in our own minds, so in hopes of kind of currying favor with God, but if, if we're at all aware of the Christian story, and, and especially what Paul writes in his letters, is that you can't earn your way to God. You can't, you can't do good works to get to him. It's completely a free gift that God offers us. And it's so interesting as I was thinking about it this week and just reflecting on it, I was thinking, and maybe I'm wrong, but the, the Pharisees would really fit well in today's culture and just the sense of that we live in such a performance-driven society. If you're a KU fan or a, or a Kansas City Chiefs fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We just let go of two coaches. Why? One, for KU, he was a great guy. He was, a, he was a Christian. He had just an outstanding character. But his record, for lack of a better word, stunk. And he didn't perform well. He didn't perform well as a coach, and so they had to let him go. And that's just, that's just the way it is. If you go to a sporting event, a professional sporting event, um, you see it. You know, the crowd starts to boo after the quarterback throws five interceptions. And, and we see that in our jobs. We don't get paid just because we're good people to have these jobs. No, we're, we're paid according to our performance and we're also given the opportunity to advance according to our purpose or to our, to our performance. And so it's just embedded in our, in our culture and we even kind of manifest that with how we raise our children occasionally is that we, we kind of expect them to, to perform at a certain level. And I'm, I gotta be careful because I know that's not true of everyone. But some people struggle with, with kind of brokeraging love by the way in which their children perform but then when we get to God the Father, he makes no claim of that way in which he relates to us. With God, it's grace and it's acceptance and love poured out because of what his son did for, for us on the cross. No wonder, and I've kind of hit this before, but no wonder the gospel is such a stumbling block to so many people in America. You know, it, it really sets Christianity apart from all these other religions and philosophies, at least the majority of them, that, that if, you, if you really get down to the details of what they, they support and what they propose is that you have to do all these things to kind of reach this level of, a, of acceptance of divinity or, 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 or reaching this level of, of, of favor with God. But it's only in Christianity where we see this free gift being extended to us and there's nothing we can do to earn it. 
So do you see yourself better than you ought to? Because in reality, you're sick. I am sick, and we need to turn and trust Jesus. Moving from this, um, this point, it's, the next point is this, is that there's another group that's being emphasized in this passage. It, it's this, is that those who know they are unrighteous. There's such a contrast um, here between the Pharisees who think they are righteous and the group represented by Levi who know they are unrighteous. And in this story, um, in other stories, it's Matthew, it's the same person, just a, another name, or a different name for the same person. And um, In this, in verse 27, it says this, And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. I think Luke really wants to emphasize that Luke, or Levi, was a tax collector. And we kind of lose the, the, the shock value um, through, through just um, time and through history. But if you were an, a listener in the original audience, you would be repulsed as soon as you heard the, 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 the pro- pro- profession tax collector. Um, tax collectors uh, were hired by Roman authorities. They basically they had taxes for everything from bridges to farms to, uh, to roads to whatever. And so what, what would happen is that the, the Roman authorities would say, this is what we need you to charge and often what would happen is the tax collectors would take, would, they would basically place bids for how much money they think they thought they could get. But quite often what they would do is that they would actually uh, skim some money off the top for themselves. So there would be the minimum of what the Romans were requiring. And then they would also go around asking for more than what was required by the Roman authorities. So they were, they were basically parasites that were living off of, 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 of people's hard work that... that that they were basically um, not only traitors, if, if you're an Israelite, you saw them as a traitor, but you also saw them as a parasite who was thriving on, on making life tough for everyone else. And so when we hear that Levi is a tax collector, we should be kind of shocked. And the only, way, the only, the only thought or, or, you know, you try to kind of bring it into the context of modern day, like what profession that would be. And, and really, it's so hard to even kind of put that in um, in terms, but just to know that the original audience and that Luke is really trying to emphasize that, that, that Jesus is, is, is asking somebody who is a tax collector, a horrible person, to come and follow him. And so what does Luke do? He throws him a feast. Luke throws a feast for Jesus, and he invites all of his friends. But because he's, he's just such a horrible person, he only has other tax collectors to come and other sinners. That's the only, that's the only people he associated with. But there's Jesus. He's going right in. He's going to fellowship with them. And it, it's this beautiful, uh, this beautiful um, picture. And, and I just want to emphasize this a little bit about Levi's reaction to Jesus' uh, command to follow. It really emphasizes, in verse 28, leaving everything he rose and followed him. It's almost like this immediate getting up and just going. He, he's there at the booth, and Jesus says, follow me, and he just gets up and goes. And, and that's something that we just need to, to think about for a second, that when Jesus in our lives calls us to follow him, we need to leave anything and everything that keeps us from doing that. Um, some of us, we're, we're in jobs, if you're in a job that the, the, the employer is asking you to do something that you know is immoral or not appropriate, you need to consider what, what this passage of, of leaving and, and, and Jesus' call to follow means. But anywhere, and, and, and kind of, you know, if you just think about it, Think in your heart, where, where am I resisting Jesus' call to follow him? But I would just, I would just say that there's this urgency that, G, that, that Levi has, or Matthew has, to following Jesus. 
And so he gets up. And so um, Levi knows he's unrighteous. He knows he's a thief. He knows he's plagued with greed and sick with sin. And we see that his only hope is by by turning and following Jesus. Uh, A few chapters after this, in in chapter 7, we get a a great story, um, starting in verse 36, of what I think I'm I'm trying to articulate here. Let me read the story out loud. It's, It's the story of a sinful woman forgiven. And it's, it's, really, it's a really moving story and I think helps bring home what this story has to offer. It says this in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and when he says him, it's Jesus. And he went into the house, or the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of their head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, which they could not pay, he can, or when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will, I love, uh, will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And at this Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The, the story of the woman caught in sin, it doesn't say explicitly what the sin is, but it does say that she's a woman of the city. It's implying that she's a prostitute. And here she is, she's caught in the sin, and the, G- the Pharisees, they, they think that Jesus is completely oblivious to the fact that this woman is a woman of the city, that she's a prostitute. And they're saying if he really knew how bad she was, he wouldn't want anything to do with her. And what, what's going on in this story? Despite their perceptions of, of, of what they think Jesus should do, Jesus knows exactly her story. He knows her brokenness. And, and this woman, she knows how deep, deep, deep her sin runs. And, and she, she comes to Jesus, running to him, kissing his feet, wiping, her, wiping his feet with her own tears, using her hair. She knows exactly how sick she is. And here she is, she's turning to Jesus. It's such a contrast of, of characters. See, she couldn't run to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, because all they would do is they would condemn her. They, they would tell her that she, she needs to clean up, that she needs to get herself right. They would have ridiculed her. They would have, they would have made fun of her for her unrighteousness. 
So here she is, she's turning to Jesus, and what does Jesus do in the story? He doesn't turn her away, he doesn't, he doesn't ostracize her, he doesn't condemn her, he, he sits there because he, he knows that she's turning, and, and in that turning she's asking for forgiveness of the way that she's been living, and she's, she's just brought to this point of tears, and Jesus is there, he's not turning away, he's accepting it. He's accepting this woman as she is. Jesus welcomes her and accepts her worship and tenderly forgives her sins so that she can go in peace. And, and, and that's it. That's the gospel. That's, when we talk about the gospel, that's, it's, it's another word for good news. That's what makes the gospel such good news. Is, you know, I don't know your stories. I don't know, uh, again, I've said this before, I don't know uh, what brought you here today, but I know that there have been a lot of people that have been hurt and burnt by the church. And not, I'm not saying this church, I'm saying the general church. Um, one, one unfortunate part about being in seminary um, is, is this, is that you hear a lot of stories about either how people were, were hurt by other churches or, or the harm that is done um, in, other, in other churches around the country. And it really, to be honest, just as a quick note, it makes me thank God that, that I had the chance to be in this church because that was never the case here. I, I feel so fortunate that I came from Lion and Lamb opposed to some of these just horror stories that I hear of other men um, serving and just the, the, the crud that they went through. And so I know that some of you here, I mean, it's just you, you just have to fight back tears just to think about all the painful things that have happened in your own story with people in church. I get that. They're imperfect people. And, 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 and some of us, we know that we've also hurt other people and let me say this with absolute certainty, that that's not the gospel, that that's not what the Bible is all about. It's, it's, it's not the heart of Jesus' ministry. Jesus sits with, with arms wide open and, and willing to accept anyone that would turn to him to, to fess up that they're not the way they should be, that not the, they haven't been acting the way that they've been called to be by God. And so he's sitting there with, with wide open arms, and, and that's the amazing power of this whole story. The fact that Jesus is willing to heal a person caught in substance abuse or a man who's, who's entangled with sexual addictions or a woman just absolutely obsessed with how she, she looks or how she's perceived by others to, to all these people that, that struggle with pleasing others more than God or that are self-righteous or that are greedy or that lie and cheat or to just an absolutely ordinary person living in the middle of America here Jesus Christ stands willing to offer healing to anyone who would turn to him. Now, I get that, that, my, that there's a caution here. If I talk about grace too much, that, that some of you are saying, but Steve, if you, if you talk about grace, then you know, you're not calling anybody up. You, know, that, that you might be emphasizing, well, we can just live any way we want knowing that we, we can always be forgiven. And that's not what I'm, I'm doing. Don't, don't hear what I'm not doing. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book The Cost of Discipleship really makes that important distinction when he talks about the difference between costly grace and cheap grace. And he, and he talks about cheap grace as being that which is preaching forgiveness and reconciliation without repentance and, and, and obedience. And, and so let me just state it clearly that, that a life of repentance, that is turning to God, to owning up to God your, your failings. And obedience to God's word is at the heart of Christian, Christian spirituality and Christian growth. I'm not, I'm not de-emphasizing that by any means. 
But why I want to talk about grace and focus on this story here today is this, is that I believe that by embracing God's grace and the grace that he pours out to us, that what it does is this, is that it, it stirs affections in our heart so that as we're tempted to sin or to, tempted to disobey God, that our love for God would push out those desires again, uh, to sin so that we would love God more than we'd love our own sin. If I'm, if I'm just honest, if, if I think about my own story and about how um, some of the most transformational moments in my life with, with reading um, and just growing as a Christian, it's when God, has, when God has shown himself to be absolutely faithful to pursue me despite all of my moral failings. I mean, some of you have known me my whole life that are here, and some of you know me since I was in high school, and you know how much of a, as Grace would say, scallywag that I've been. But yet, despite being a scallywag or a rascal or a complete sinner, God has continuously pursued and loved me. And as I've embraced that grace, it's brought this transformation in my life. And so I want to talk about grace today because it's that free gift that God has, despite any works that we do, that should spur us on to obey him and live faithfully as a Christian in our lives. My hope through this sermon is that as as our hearts fall in love with Christ, we'll obey him. him. Um, Last, I just wanted to emphasize and the story, and a lot of people emphasize it too, is this, that, that the gospel really is for all people, that, that Jesus is willing to go into the realm of sinners and tax collectors and, and, and enjoy their company. And so what that means for us today is that, that is the gospel, is the story, is it enlarging our hearts to love all people? Who needs to hear the gospel? All people. Everyone needs to hear it. So... My hope, and this is what Grace and I have prayed um, for this church, is that your hearts would continue to enlarge for other people. And as, as that happens, that you would ask people to either come to church, or you'd ask people into your homes and share a meal with them, or you'd ask God how you can serve other people that you, you know that, that you want to share this, this, this gospel of Christ to. Um, I, I really was trying to stay away from doing like a 2012, like, you know, New Year's resolution kind of message, like, go get them. Um, but if I was going to give you a challenge and it's on there, who would you um, invite to church or who would you invite into your life or who can your family pray for? Because all people need to hear the message of the love of Christ. And so my, my, my charge then is this, is that you would consider praying and asking as a family one person to church or into your life each month. There, you can just begin to just think about that question. Who could you invite to church? Who could you invite into your life? And there should be this whole, oh, excuse me, this whole, um, tons of people that should come to mind. I know for us, that's, I, Grace and I have talked about, there's just tons of people that we can think about. So who would you um, share the gospel with? Who would you invite into your life? Messed up my mojo, sorry. Um, <clears throat> Where do you see yourself in this story? Just concluding, just some thoughts. Where do you see yourself? Luke, he's casting a wide net. It's so easy to kind of read that story and see yourself looking at the Pharisees and pointing a finger at them, saying, look, get it together. And it's so easy to look and kind of stand on the other side and say, look at the tax collectors. But what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to, and Luke is trying to emphasize this, that Jesus is casting this wide net of, of all people need to hear the gospel, that all people are unrighteous, that all people are sick, 
and need to believe, that all people need to turn to Jesus, that it's the only way that we can ever have any true hope in this world, that we can have any true spiritual satisfaction is by believing in the gospel. So what has happened to my friend John? By God's grace, John is still alive. It's, it's an amazing story, really. It's, um, he's defied unbelievable odds. He was only given a few months to live, and it's been four years later. Jo- jo- um, John is still fighting cancer. But after much treatment and much aggressive chemotherapy, the, the, the cancer had shrunk to such a point that they were actually able to remove it. And from what, we, what I've heard last is that the majority of the cancer is out of his body, which is just an incredible story. But John, he's become an advocate for for people that are in their 50s to get colon screenings, and he'll be the first to tell um, somebody that's in their 50s to go see a doctor because John doesn't want others to make the same mistake that he did. And and John ignored all the indications and symptoms of being sick. It is, you know, get on Facebook or whatever, and you see all these people making New Year's resolutions, and I'm not discouraging New Year's resolutions, but... Thinking about that, thinking about a New Year's resolution, people, people like that in the sense that they feel like it's a fresh start. They're saying, okay, you know, I ate way too much cheesecake, I ate way too much food, I gained a few pounds, this is kind of a fresh start for the new year, I'm going to lose some weight, or whatever it is. You know, it's just this kind of perception that we have a fresh start. And what's amazing about Christianity, and what's so beautiful about, about it is that when you believe that Jesus Christ is, is the Son of God, that He really did exist, and that He really died and was resurrected, that when you've accepted that and God offers that to you, you have a fresh start every time you mess up. You don't have to live in fear of, of thinking, you know, is God done with me? Is God given up on me? Do I need to start over? You're, you, you stand affirmed every time. That's, that's the, the amazing part of grace. That's the amazing part of God's love for us. We don't have to do this whole... New Year's resolution when it comes to our Christian spirituality. We get the fresh start every time we turn to Him. So for you that are Christians today, rest in that fact. That should, that should spur us to, to live faithfully, to, to want to live lives that honor God. And for, for those that may be considering Christianity or, or don't know where they're at with this, what a beautiful gift we have. It's kind of being able to take that extra dose of a Christmas present, I suppose, and, and being willing to consider to take the free gift of grace that Christ offers us. Listen, you are sick. And I, I'm sick. And our only hope, true hope, is to turn to the healing power of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I just want to kind of let it hang out out there, just that tension of, of us as imperfect, sick people, just letting us sit in that reality that that is a true statement, that we are broken, that we haven't lived the lives that we are called to, that we have lived less than perfect lives, and, and your standard is perfection. And Lord, we... We can go on living a rat race life, but Lord, the only way that we can ever enter in relationship with you and have true hope and satisfaction in this life is by believing the truth that it is not only a free gift, Lord, but that we 
are given a gift of life through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That through his death, Lord, that it's such a mystery that it is that all of our transactions, all of our wrongdoings that we've done to you and to others can be forgiven. And Lord, I just pray that that reality would sit deep in our hearts. That that would be on our minds, especially now as we we sing and praise you and look forward to sharing in the Lord's Supper. That that would be a reminder to us. And Father, for those that maybe you've been a Christian for one year or 20 years or whatever, that, that know that they, that we, and that they struggle with seeing ourselves better than we ought to. How, would you just help us to see that? Help us to see the standards that we, we put on others but we don't put on ourselves, Lord, and know that, that we are sick and that we need to, to come to you to find healing. Father, I just thank you that despite my imperfections, in spite of our imperfections, you didn't leave us alone, that you gave us your son. And that if we just listened to each other's stories, we would hear this, this narrative of, of your love that relentlessly pursues us despite our imperfections. Lord, open up our hearts as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.